Are you ready to explore something different, something more? On Straight Ahead, hosts Arya Tepper and I examine sources of cultural vitality, from jazz music to the Jewish tradition. If you're searching for generous and soulful approaches to contemporary challenges, join us for Straight Ahead, the Omni-American podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Greg Thomas, co-director of the Omni-American Future Project, joined by fellow co-host and co-director, Arye Tepper. And today, we're so honored to present a conversation that I had with Winston Marsalis during the uh, pandemic. Of course, Winston Marsalis is a world-renowned artist, musician, trumpet master. He is the artistic and managing director of Jazz at Lincoln Center, the musical director of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, and the 2021 winner of the Albert Murray Award for Omni-American Excellence given by the Omni-American Future Project. And today we talk about, or you'll hear us talk about, his recording, The Democracy Suite, very important topic for our, our show, Democracy. He also talks about his relationship with Stanley Crouch, Ralph Ellison, and Albert Murray. And we spend some time talking about some of the vagaries and difficulties and shadows of what is called white liberalism. So, Arye, can you share some things about our own connection to Winton? I'd love you to start that off because I got some things to share and I think you do too. Yeah, absolutely. Greg, you have a, a, a real connection, an intimate connection. I have, I'm coming from a different angle, which is I have a personal story. It's a personal jazz initiation story. And jazz initiation stories are a genre. This is something that happens to people. You get hit by the lightning bolt. So that, for instance, it's a really interesting genre in, in American culture and history. Professor Charles Black, who helped Thurgood Marshall uh, write the legal briefs for uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, he writes about how when he was a 16-year-old growing up in, in Texas, a young 16-year-old white kid growing up in Texas, he heard about a, lo a local dance that was happening. He didn't know anything about the music, but it was a dance. He wanted to go to the dance. All the girls are going to be there. And uh, he gets to the dance, and on stage is genius, Louis Armstrong. And he, he writes that coming into contact with genius is a solemn moment. And it was at that moment that he understood that humanity transcends everything else, through Louis Armstrong. That framed his subsequent experience, and in a sense, a very real deep sense, informed his activity when he was arguing for Brown versus the Board of Education. Martin Williams, who the author of the wonderful book, uh, The Jazz Tradition, writes about how in Philadelphia, 1940-50, he heard Sidney Bechet live, and for him, that was... That was when he understood the essential miracle of music. Greg, you and I were together in, in Beersheba. We heard the president of Ben Gurion University, uh, Professor uh, Daniel Chaimovich, talk about how, as a young man growing up around Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania, he had this transformative moment hearing Wynton Marsalis record in the studio. For me, it was as a young 16 year old man growing up in Washington, D.C., who uh, I went with some of my friends to Blues Alley, and we heard Wynton Marsalis, uh, his his quartet with Robert Hurst on bass, 
Robert Hirsch presents and uh, Jeff Tame Watts and and Marcus Roberts. I mean, these are this was just you know this was a, a fantastic quartet, and I didn't have the tools to register what was happening to me at the time. I came from a house where I was exposed to music. We loved music. My father, my beloved father, may, he, may his soul rest in peace, took me when I was five years old to hear the Who. <laughs> when I was six, Elton John. I mean, he 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 exposed me what he to what he loved. And he had some good music playing around the house. Uh, and he, he loved music. And, uh, but I, I came, we were at Blues Alley, and this quartet was playing. And it was something different in kind. Uh, I was elevated to a different level that I'd never experienced before. And one story captured this for me, which is that I have a memory today of locking eyes with the drummer, Jeff Tame Watts. I can still imagine it. Like everything else disappears and we locked eyes. It was kind of hypnotic. I was hypnotized. Now that might've been in reality for two or three seconds, but the experience was of, of a different order. And that's when I understood that there is this higher order. There is this thing called human excellence. It's a real thing. So that's part one of my jazz initiation story. After we hear the interview, I'll be happy to share part two, which touches upon uh, what Witten, how Witten and his music helped me and, and, and the omni-American literature surrounding the music and informed about the music brought me in touch with a reality of nobility and, and soulfulness. That's wonderful, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. So in, in terms of my own initiation stories, you know, I, I've got quite a few as far as the music. But in terms of Winton specifically, I mean, I first dived into the music, um, fell heads over heels in love with the music in, in the late 70s uh, while I was in high school. Uh, I had heard jazz before, but it was something about experiencing it live, hearing my high school stage band uh, perform at a year-end concert in my, my sophomore year. And hearing them play all from Weather Report to Herbie Hancock's uh, Rocket to music by Basie, Count Basie and Duke Ellington, Steely Dan, uh, Spyro Gyra. It just moved me so much. So I was inspired to actually pick up and start learning the alto saxophone. But it also took me into a deep immersion of listening to music when I got up in the morning, when I came home from school before I went to bed at night. And I would listen to uh, WRVR, which was based at Riverside Church. That's what the RVR stands for. And they played both what's called straight ahead uh, mainstream jazz, but they also played fusion, which is a combination of some jazz elements and some elements of, of rock, some elements of pop and maybe world music kind of all mixed together. And I just couldn't get enough of it. And so in the uh, late 70s, around 1979, 1980, I started hearing wind of on, on WRBR and WBGO um, in Newark, New Jersey, started hearing talk about this young man, Winston Marsalis, from the birthplace of jazz, New Orleans, who was not only a, a budding, excellent, you know, trumpeter uh, on jazz. But part of his claim to fame is that he came from a musical family, 
uh, Ellis Marsalis being the patriarch, uh, excellent jazz pianist. But he also played the European concert uh, uh, classical trumpet tradition at a very, very high level. And so I started hearing about him and, 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 and said, hmm, who is this? And so I actually went to see him uh, perform. I, I followed him. He was playing with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers before he had his own group and his own uh, first recording. Um, self-titled, Winton Marsalis, uh, eponymously titled, Think of One and other early recordings. And so I was inspired because this is someone who was only like two years older than me. And he was dedicated to the tradition of jazz, acoustic tradition, playing, you know, from blues all the way to the music of mid-60s Miles Davis, uh, being able to play with virtuosity and deep feeling, everything from ballads and blues to 4-4 swing, all of that. And he also played incredible classical, European classical trumpet. So I had pictures of Wynton Marsalis. I had his album covers on my uh, wall at, at Hamilton College. But then, and I would, I mean, I remember seeing him on the cover of Time magazine, and he was like really helping this resurgence of recognition of jazz, which I had fallen in love with even before. So this is someone who I looked at as I once told him, because I got a chance to meet him. I, I, I called him the IG, an inspiration to our generation. And I first met him after a concert when Jazz at Lincoln Center was just a summer program at Lincoln Center. And I met him after one of the concerts. Fellow writer, uh, Plato Benjamin, uh, knew the head of publicity for the company that handled Winton's work and maybe uh, the Lincoln Center Jazz Program. And so I came to this concert and went to his home on 65th Street, high rise overlooking the Hudson. And I met him, we talked, but the first thing we did before we talked is we went to play basketball uh, about a block away. It was late at night. I had my shoes on. He's like, hey, man, you better watch out. You're going to bust your ass, man. I said, I'm all right. This, this, this sounds like a Chappelle Prince story. Can, can Witten play ball? Oh, Witten can really play ball. He plays ball very well. He plays chess very well. So, you know, <laughs> so, yes. So anyway, I got a chance to play ball with him. Then we went back to his pad. There was a bunch of other people there too, but we kicked it for like three hours talking about everything and sundry. And that started a, a personal uh, connection. And so um, he's just been inspiring to me in my dedication to the music. He showed that someone of my generation could be dedicated in the same way. And um, that's why we're glad to present this conversation that I have with Vincent Marsalis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Greg, I think we can agree that I mean, the jazz tradition is this, this American tradition of nobility, trans, this tradition that transmits life going back 100 years. And Wynton Marsalis, in, in so many ways, is the embodiment of the best, so much of what this, what this tradition has to offer. And also an embodiment of the omni-American ideal, which, which you'll hear us you riff go. on. All right. Enjoy. All right, Winton, thanks so much, man, for speaking with me about the Democracy Suite. My first question is, 
When and why did you decide to write The Democracy Suite? Just looking around at all the things that happened, like all of us, it's a, a mutual experience. Uh, we all had being at home. There was, a, it was not the chance to look away from everything that happened. And later in this summer, this, this past summer, speaking with members of our touring team and our concert team at Jazz at Lincoln Center, we were thinking of ways to get out in space and to continue to serve our audience. And one of the members of our, of our team, Dan Israel, said we should write a, a, a piece and go into the hall and record it and offer it to presenters. So uh, it was just easy for me to, for me to, to write it. And uh, I wrote it, and then, then we, went into, we went into the hall and we played it, and we went on a tour in the fall. Went on a three-week tour, a lot of great places, people we knew who we had been working with, uh, great partners, partners in Chautauqua, uh, and, and, and other venues that we, we played. All beautiful, community, everybody was so glad to get out. Of course, socially distanced, we take COVID tests every week. And then uh, we sent the film of what, what we had done in our hall, out around the, the country and the world. And then when the shows were shown, I would get on Zoom and do an interview with, with different people from that community. And it ended up being a really a, a nice thing, a soulful thing to do. And to give the opportunity to connect with a lot of, a lot of different people around the world. I hear you, man. Those soulful connections are what the music is about. So I'm wondering, what would you say the connection thematically is between your most previous recording they have a funky lowdown, and this new one, the Democracy Suite. Well, you know, the the ever funky lowdown was the. Uh, I, I, I started first thinking about that in 2015, and we recorded it in 2019. We released it in 2020, and it seemed like it was written for this time, but it, it wasn't. It was written before that, before for this time, and it's a it was a big thing with a lot of words and, and three beautiful singers and window pairs was doing the narration that it was like a circus, you know, a lot of different kind of music, very complex orchestration and the use of another language, unusual musical language in terms of using different types of New Orleans funk beats, two beats, using counterpoint stuff in different keys. It was much more uh, avant-garde in that way. In terms of, of this piece, it's much more to the point and use this kind of language, freedom language of the 1960s and 70s. And the way that we play, where we put a little, little Kilroy was here, kind of signature on it. We play a lot more contraponal uh, improvisation, more space for improvisation. And the democracy suite was much easier to write because it's just not as, it's not as involved. It went down much, much less marking the parts, fewer uh, for septet. But uh, the, the type of trust it takes to play in that way is, I guess, it's, it's, it's just this comes from the same type of consciousness and feeling. And the Democracy Suite was more was instrumental music about the, the time right now, topical. And the Ever Funky Lowdown is topical, but it's about all times. I hear you, man. So I'm curious about some of the titles of the uh, Democracy Suite. Some of the titles are clear, for example, sloganize, patronize, realize, revolutionize, activism, uh, ballot box bounce, you know, voting. But some others aren't as clear. 
Now you started with be present, which I thought was a great start. But what does that allude to or, or signify? Well, I had two things. One, I wanted to have the language of like writing in fourths in a, in a melody that was recognizable. Somebody said it sounded like Stanley Turrentine's tune, Sugar. I was but wondering, I, I was wondering what that was like. I was like, I was like, dang, I just remind me of some. It, develops, <laughs> it, it develops in a, in a different way. Sure. But I did want to get a theme that was like something you had heard, like kind of 19, like that, that kind of freedom, freedom. Uh, movement music, minor key, fourth, fourth intervals, and then to put a different type of bridge, but do with a contrapuntal line, but do it changes the scene easy, but you gotta kind of know where they're going. Uh, always try to find like a harmonic progression that still has some lyricism. Having written progressions, they're really complex, but, but nobody can really hear the complexity of it. So it's like doing a double juke, you know, you just end up where you started. So with that, and then by be present, it means uh, uh, be in this time. It's for everybody who is actually present, who got out, who protested, who let their voice be heard, who in, in any way. And, and, you know, I was asked a lot during this time in interviews about what did I think about Black Lives Matter? What do I think about X racial thing? And I, I always would say, well, we have such a bad problem with it in so many arenas. Whatever your, your arena you're in, do something. Be present, and you're going to be helping. Because anyway, you look, you know, the banking industry, man, it, you can take your, you can take your pick. It, it's been a problem so long in our country. From that to urban renewal, to laws, to police, to schools, to business, it doesn't matter. So where, be present. Be a part of it. And then for all the people who had to be present when they didn't want to be. Mm. Like there's this thought that the essential workers and the healthcare workers wanted to be at work. Mm. They have families too. They have problems, tragedies, things. They want their health. They have they have all the, all the problems we have and more. And they have to go into work and deal with an illness that we don't really know what it is. And maybe be maybe get it. And even doctors, you know, it doesn't matter. You're looking at the whole healthcare system of everybody who had to be present and people showed up. And uh, we have a tendency to think it's like a Disney Disney film. And they, they have a cape on and they're showing up. And bah, 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 but it's not like that, they're just going to work. And they have all the same personal problems and family members dying and tragedies exacerbated by, by monetary issues. And still, they end dealing with overwhelmed system of sick people every day. So, I, and I loved what, you know, when, when people would seven o'clock beat on their, uh, their pants. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah, that's right. man. That's, I mean, even though, you know, okay, but I think it's, we should still be doing that. Yeah. It, it make you, make you, it make you mindful. I hear you about those healthcare workers, man. The thing about them that gets me, it's like a everyday heroism because of what they were doing and the context they were doing it in, 
daily facing danger. Many don't want to do it. So it's not like, you know, and the circumstances also force many people to do it. That's right. They didn't have a choice. It doesn't make it any less heroic. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, another tune. That dance that we do that you love too. It's just like a groove, you know, people like to play groove. Man, I was noticed all the kind of, uh, on the television, I would be noticing the different protests. Some people have a nice groove, man. They'd be in a, in a car, no freedom, no work. So, you know, depending on their chant, they would have a more complex rhythm. Right. And I see more people playing tambourines. I always wonder, where do all these tambourines come from? And, uh, you know, being from New Orleans, there's any type of parade, people getting out in the street, getting down, uh, getting up and getting down. Just, that's all it is. And it also, a lot of the democracy suite has two melodic lines going at the same time, kind of contrapuntal writing that has, that just has two-part two counterpoint. And the solos, a lot of times, we're dialoguing with each other and trying to, I was trying to share the space more. Mm. So everything I do on, on the Democracy Suite, we play more two or three horns polyphony to try to say that we have to share our space more. Shared leadership is what we call it for Jazz yeah. Leadership Project. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, all right. It came round again. Oh, came round again. Oh, it oh, come what, round. All it right. come round again. Just what old people tell you. No matter where you are, somebody... It's been around. Every time you tell them something, it reminds them of something else. This ain't nothing but how we had it here. That's more of a just a, that's related to be present. So present, be present is a, and it come around again as a, oh, yeah. 
So people who had elderly people, just generally, some younger people passed away, but generally elderly people with some underlying condition, conditions, if you weren't in the state or you weren't near them, a lot of times you didn't see them. So they have to come to you, and they come to you in a dream, but it's deeper than a dream mm. because everybody is having it. So it's a collective kind of thing that makes wow. it deeper. Mm. And you have to sit with them and heal. Your grief is healed with them by sitting like that in that state. Wow. That's what I meant by that. And for my, because it's for my father, so I use the language of Arnett Coleman. My father loved Arnett. Arnett lived in, in New Orleans in the 50s. And Ed Blackwell, Arnett's first drummer, grew up playing with my father. They all wasn't but five or six of them trying to play modern jazz. And Arnett told me one time that uh, my daddy and Alvin Baptiste, great clarinetist also in, from New Orleans, they were all close. Anybody trying to play modern jazz, they, it's just a, they were struggling against what was going on. And, and by that, I don't mean segregation, just they didn't have an audience, really. That Arnett, that, that Alvin Baptiste and my father drove to Los Angeles and knocked on his door and said, Man, we just came to see what you was doing. <laughs> so it's something about it when he told me the story. We we both started laughing. He was telling the story to make me see how familiar stuff was and how much love they had between them and how serious they were about music. Like you're gonna drive from New Orleans to Los Angeles just to see what somebody's doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I hear you. I hear you. And then that's when all we'll see. Well, that talks about how we all come together when there's a tragedy. That mm. the tragedy overwhelms our tribalism. In mm. the in the moment of that, like after after Katrina, we saw that with the nation and the citizens of New Orleans. After 9/11, we saw with people traveling around and doing different things, we were forced to come together. So that's when all we'll see is more a global thing. Like when will we all see that? Our existence on this earth, we, we have a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship with people. And we're in ecosystems that will be in balance and, and they can accommodate everybody. That kind of ecosystem thinking and ecosystem health instead of imbalance because of greed and stupidity. And it's, you know, it's the source of endless religious books, books, paintings, music. It just goes on and on of, uh, of peer, people and shaman and seers and priests and priestesses artists who've said this. So it's just another statement of that in the New Orleans way. And with that, I put it in a key that you don't necessarily want to play in. It's in, it's in E. And, uh, but still, the question for me is to find that balance between things that have musical complexity, but still have a kind of lyrical simplicity mm. and, a, and a kind of form that, that, that someone can listen to and figure out where the form is at. All right, man, I just have two more questions. Now, the promotional copy for the record says, quote, the question that confronts us right now as a nation is, do we want to find a better way? That's them quoting you. And it seems to me, if I can get editorial for a moment, that some people want to find a better way and, and, and some people don't. So what would you say about that? We can't, we can't look at other people and know what they're doing. We can only work on ourselves and mm. our community and what mm. we're doing. What are me and you doing? And what can we do to be better citizens in our community? And we can find a lot that we can do. Mm. And I think it's such a, a large problem that confronts the world. And, and my, my question in that was, was a question of, is that what you want to do? Mm. You may not want to do that. 
So that's what I said. Basically, some my, people with my don't students, really I always to. say, you know, if if my dad used to always say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, if if you don't want it to be, and it's it's not for me to to look at you and say you need to be doing this. I need to say to myself, what can I do? Mm-hmm. To, to show what, what actions can I take to demonstrate more fully that I want to find a better way. Mm-hmm. And because that means I'm going to do something different from what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I have to challenge myself to go down that difficult road. And sometimes I'm up to it and sometimes I'm not. So, you know, yeah. and, and the, the we is a matter of a co- kind of collective consciousness. Like in a jazz group, for us to play together, we have to want to play together. Ted Nash told him, I have to play with him. If I have to play one chorus instead of five. I have to want to do that. If I don't want to play with him, I don't need four horns. I'm just playing by myself. Mm. I can play as long as I want. Right. But if I want to, I have to figure out how to share this space. If I want to follow the Constitution, I'm not trying to figure out how to get around it. I'm trying to figure out how to strengthen it. Mm. Because it's designed to distribute agency through a very complex system of checks and balances. Mm. And that system is easy to subvert. You know, like, like any lawyers, it's easy to, to... And the question is, do you want to follow the laws? Do you want to? We, we, when we, we say things like with, with police reform, it ends up being a senseless argument with defund the police. And you get the most extreme sides, and they, you know, newspapers love whatever is extreme. Mm-hmm. So that leads you toward whoever has mental illness. Mm-hmm. So now we're making kind of fun of, I'm not going to say it's fun, but we're kind of playing on a, a mental illness in the society, somebody who will get out, even to the most extreme, kill people, holler and scream, spit on people, knock people out, hit people. Most people are not going to do that. Right. You know, police who will be extremely brutal and, and cruel, now they represent all the police. No. So, and the, and the truth is that most of us, we don't fall in that in that category. You know, we're we're participants, and the integrity of our participation, we monitor that, and we. So, when we hear foolishness, it's it's important not to entertain foolishness, mm. because man, you start entertaining foolishness just for the fun of it, and you look up and you're foolish. Mm. And the quality of life diminishes for all of us. Hmm. So it's a challenge, but it's always been a challenge. And, and, and for you and I, for every, for, we're walking down a long road. If we aspire to, for the, for, for the, 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 uh, a, a richer and more rich way of life for more people, that by necessity is going to be people who don't agree with us, who don't look at the world the way we look at it. That's right. Who are not in our group. Like the world, can, we can't look for what, I want the world to be good, but not for these people. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like the whole thing that we saw symbolically in the election. We only want the votes of these people not to count. Mm-hmm. Man, you know, okay, it's easy for us to agree with that because it's you and I because it's our side. We we see how absurd that is. Right. But there's a lot on our side that is absurd. All right, man. So my final question has to do with the music and democracy. Now, for me, I first really started understanding through writing the articulation of the democracy jazz connection through the work of Stanley Crouch. 
And then reading Stanley's work led me to Albert Murray and Ralph Ellison, who really go into beautiful detail about these relationships between people and ideas. So I'm wondering for you, how did their work add to your understanding of the relationship between democracy and jazz? Yeah, you know, man, I mean, I, well, I love them personally, so it's hard to even talk about it. Yeah. But you know, writers are not musicians. And uh, because my daddy liked to talk about music, I like to talk about it. I like to talk about it. I like to read about it. I love the stuff they said. Some stuff I, I agree with, some I didn't, but I'm a musician, so yeah. a musician plays music. And you could be a musician who's unbelievable understanding of music and can play and write, and you may not want to talk about it or not know. You may have nothing to say about it, but what you're saying about it is in your music. I read an interview with Steve Coleman and he said that it made me laugh because it's so true. And uh, I think that. Um, but, but, but what I'm asking you, and, and let me just, you know, I'm not really pushing back because I, I feel with you and I hear no, what no. you're saying, but I would say that, I mean, look, Stanley played drums, Ellison played trumpet. Uh, Murray plays some bass. I'm not talking about professionally. But I'm saying. I'm not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I play saxophone. Again, you, I'm not saying professionally. But say, if you hear Stanley play the drums, you see why he went in the right. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I, I mean, man, one time. I'm, 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 I'm only time. messing with him because I messed with him when he was alive. Nonstop. Because he loved messing with you. Oh, no so doubt. Because he loved messing with me. I would always mess with him and say, all right, man, you keep messing with me. I'll make you play those drums. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you something, man. I remember one time I went over when he was in, when he was still uh, uh, on 11th Street in the village, and uh, he put on this recording. Matter of fact, you might have talked about of him it. and David Murray. Well, no, it was just it was just him. You oh, talked really? about yeah, you talked about that at his memorial service, but no, right. it was just, it was just him. And I'm listening now. You with the relationship you had with him, you were just frank and candid. <laughs> I didn't know who it was, so I was like, I'm hedging my bets. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> that's real interesting. <laughs> and he said, that's me. I said, oh, okay. That's really sad, no. And we, went, and, we went up, and we went on to the next subject. <laughs> no, man, I love him. I mean, you I know, know, but me and him, because there's such a kind of, in the in the in the quote unquote liberal writers, there's such a uh, a kind of patronization and propriety over over black over black people like a the intellectual part of it like the leadership they they don't really like that so that would make me when I was younger really play up Stanley and Murray you know yeah Stanley, Murray because that kind of black that's not because intellectual you're to, excellence yeah because you're always supposed to be going toward an academy. Whose whose uh, theorems and postulations work against your best interests? You're mm. supposed to always be submitting your work to them for their approval, mm. and it's like a trick bag that's played on you. So I realized that when I was younger, my mama used to always say it. You know, I can give you a degree that says I am a fool, and you'll run around the whole world so proud of your degree and showing everybody that degree, saying I am a fool, I am a fool. So you have to wonder what is the substance of your education. She used to always mm. say that. So with Stanley and Murray, their objectives on those things, that was really what they knew about. 
their objectives were so rooted in an Afro-American tradition that I understood and came from that, yeah, I could, it was unbelievably, their education was, phew, man, go to Murray's house every Sunday, that's my man. I could just, any, every, at a certain point, I was going to his house two, three times a week, man, sit up with Moselle. And all of it wasn't even teaching, it just uh, talking and hanging and reading. He'd tell me, and the stuff he's telling me read would be like William Faulkner, William Butler Yates. It wasn't all Afro-American. Oh, of course not. Oh. Right. And and he he of, had you and me read Mal Rowe. Mal Rowe, yeah. Kenneth Voices Burke. of Silence. You know, you know what it was. Museum Without Walls. Yeah. Hey, baby. The Human Condition. Yeah, all yeah. right, now, why the... <laughs> On and on. That's you right. know, and meeting Romare, and, and, and what Ellison was very different. You know, with Ellison, he was reading his stuff. He was, his, his writing was so poetic, and he loved it. So he, when I... See him, he would read, and he's also a trumpet player. So it's, yeah, right. we talk about the trumpet and people, what you think about this and that. And also it's a generational thing. Like, you know, they were in school in the 1930s. Yeah. So they well, were the age, yeah. yeah, they were the age of my grandfather exactly. or, or older. You know, it's right. like in a, like of my, of my grandfather. And, uh, you know, they used, to, they used to always call that, I'm, I'm your intellectual grandfather, you know. So we'd be like joking about age and time. So many of the things that I thought, of course, they didn't agree with. We, I mean, we just had a generational thing, but the education that they gave and the depth of their knowledge and study, there's no way I understood that there were people on earth like them who knew that. You know, I just didn't, I wasn't aware of it, man. When yeah. I first met Murray and went to his house, it was like, damn, I didn't understand nothing him and Crouch was talking about, <laughs> not a word of it. Hey, man, certainly you heard so-and-so, you read this, man, I never read none of that, I never heard of it, so I was just kind of, I was just like a dude from New Orleans whose daddy like was a great teacher of music and who had intellectual interest in an environment that was not an intellectual environment. Mm. And uh, yeah, man, the education and the feeling and just the, the depth. Plus, now you got to also talk about just how soulful they were when you was hanging with them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. See, I can relate yeah. to them on that level. But see, yeah, That's, for me too. It was, I mean, except for Ellison, because I, I didn't know Ellison, but it, it wasn't he was just soulful. A, yeah, you know, I hear you. Franny, but you get in there with Fanny and she 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 like you to tease him too. <laughs> the funny thing it. was all because you know how Murray didn't like you teasing him. Right. right. <laughs> he was he was always very serious. So you right. know, you you he didn't, but but you could get with Moselle, she she liked when you mess with him. Right. So if you mess with Murray, she would like that. So she would start <laughs> saying, Oh, what did you tell him? Oh, I'm so surprised to see the master being talked to that way. <laughs> so you know, I love just and you know, we were more like family, man. So oh, of course absolutely. I'd be messing with him. Yeah, and, and and I mean teasing was just kind of naturally my way, right. man. I yeah. tease my daddy all the time. I tease right. him. Crouch I was nothing but ribbing all the time with me right. and him. Right. So, but because he was so threatening to the kind of liberal establishment. Yeah. Because he wasn't. He was a. He and eventually, you know, me and Crouch started arguing about all that anti-black shit. He would be writing. Yeah. And I'd be like, man, you got to. But it. But he was a guy who you couldn't. You couldn't put him on that plantation. Now he Yeah, no, no. You couldn't pigeonhole him in any You couldn't get him. Stand. Right. Because right, at any moment. That's right. He could not behave. Right. That's right. He could, he, you know, I, I remember he wrote an article for Jazz Is or Jazz Jazz Times. Jazz Is, I think. I think it was Jazz called, Times. He was a columnist there for a minute. Called putting a white man in charge. And we had a bet on that article. And I that said, was the one that they said, yeah, I did. I said, but before the article came out, we were laughing about it. I said, Jazz. I said, you better go back to that to that other material where you constantly insulting black people because <laughs> when you write that, when you when you put this article out, you're gonna lose your job over that. Because I can my liberalism is gonna take me so far. You can come into my house, I'm gonna show you off, 
It's like what, what, what Ellison wrote in Invisible Man. But don't think that means you're going to come in here and start sleeping with my daughter. Mm. This ain't a part of that equation. Like, you you hey, overstepped now. Yeah, man, that, that reminds me of the scene in One Night in Miami, you know, directed by Regina King, my favorite actress, where it's the scene where you first see Jim Brown, the Jim Brown character played by this excellent brother, Aldous Hodge, driving his Cadillac, Joe goes up to an estate, probably a plantation. You see mm -hmm. the cypress on the trees and everything. He got his Cadillac. He gets out, knocks on the porch door. A young lady comes out, a young white girl. Uh, may I help you? He says, uh, could you tell Mr. Mr. Carlton that Jim Brown is here? And she said, oh, Jim Brown. She gets all excited, invites him in, calls her daddy. Daddy comes out. He's like, oh, James, you know, greets him, you know, with that Southern hospitality uh, in St. Simons, Georgia, where Jim Brown grew up. And they sit down. Says, you know, would you like some lemonade? No, thank you. You know, he has the young lady, the daughter, get some lemonade anyway. Again, Southern hospitality. So they talk, and he basically says, I'm so proud of you. You know, 860 yards. You know what I mean? That's a record that'll always hold them. Jim Brown's like, well, I like the record and the championship. Ah, don't worry about that. You know, that record will stand the test of time. He said, actually, it's 1800 and 63 yards. He said, that's more like it. So they talk more and it's, he had come because his aunt, Jim Brown's aunt, had said that Mr. Carlton wanted to see him. So Mr. Carlton's like, yeah, our families go back a long way. I'm so proud of you. The daughter comes back out and says, with the, with the lemonade, hands it down and says, daddy, don't, don't forget, we got to move that bureau. So he says, oh, okay. He gets up. Now this is Jim Brown. Okay, so Jim Brown, you know, says, oh, you're moving some furniture? He says, oh, let me give you a hand with that. And Mr. Carlton, played by Bo Bridges, comes and says, now, now, James, that sure is considerate of you, but you know we don't let niggas in the house. Now, you know, you just go, you know what I mean? Proud of you, keep up the good work, and then turns around. And, so that kind of liberal, uh, you know, they will be polite to you as long as you stay in your lane, bottom line. And the characters of One Night in, in Miami, which was so, um, so powerful, you know, you had not only Jim Brown, but you had Cassius Clay, then later Muhammad Ali, or soon thereafter, uh, Sam Cooke, and Malcolm X. That was a powerful movie, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Well, you know, if you're from the South, I mean, <laughs> yeah, my people are from. But the North is Georgia. And I'm Florida. gonna say one thing about the Southern. The Southern racism is actually more um, is more is more digestible for me than the Northern. I, I'm from I, the South. I agree. I mean, I'm from the North, but my people are from Georgia and Florida. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the 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 the, the North and more more it's more intellectuals engaged in it. And the, the tactics are much more uh, more subtle and real for those who, who are like that. But you know, these problems are, uh, they're nuanced and they're tied into the whole kind of sectarianism and tribalism in the world. And the, uh, 
just the way the way that people, you know, my little, my little brother always says that, that, that most things out here are random. You can't make sense of it. But the one thing that's not random is is the acquisition and the, is the, the the acquisition of power. Mm. The acquisition of power and agency, and it comes in many forms. We talking about race, it comes in that form. We talk about gender, it comes in that form. We talk about picking order in a family, it comes in that form. You know, it's, these these are, are are timeless kind of issues and problems of humanity. Yeah, and we 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 there's a continuous struggle against it. It doesn't matter who you you look at, what century you you're in. Depending on your level of of education or just natural insight. You'll find people who were trying to create an, an, a desire in human beings for equality and to share agency and power and resources with others mm. since the beginning of time. And it's an uphill struggle. And maybe, maybe that's, that's just part of what the human journey is, that there is that struggle and that strife. And if you take that strife away, what are we down here doing? We're back in the proverbial Garden of Eden or back in the... Mm. Where there's where very little was happening. So <laughs> for something to go on, you got to have some type of friction and some type of struggle. Oh, there's no doubt about that, you know, and, and that gets back to democracy, you know, democracy, sweet. Well, I mean, democracy in a pluralistic democracy, you have various groups vying for right. influence based on their right. interests, based on resources that they're struggling over. That's just kind of the way it is, as, as Albert Murray said, in an open society, you know? Right, and, and the question for each of us is, what do we actually do to participate in the society? Mm -hmm. like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. I vote, I'll complain to a congressperson. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, the, of the, the community I live in and the democracy that's in that, in terms of, uh, making more education available. Some things I participate in, but I could always do more and better as a citizen. Mm. And uh, I don't know how many of us think, think they could do better, but I think for us to evolve our, our way of life, there has to be a greater investment by citizens. Mm. It has to be more than voting. Mm -hmm. That's you right. Know, voting, voting is not enough. Right. And it's true of any education. What do you want for everybody else's kids? Mm. You know, you're not, when it, back, you could go back to the, Days when somebody's parent, somebody was a carpenter, they could show you how to do carpentry work. Somebody was a, people in the neighborhood would set up workshops for people. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to have a, a music school, Burton's Music School. It's just community music school, man. People, we would cut gold and Burton and them would teach us fundamentals of music. And uh, that, that wasn't a thing that was a school board sanctioned. It was just a guy in the community that, Yesterday, I don't know if we were talking about uh, when, when we played ball when I was growing up. It's because a guy who was a janitor, we called him Mr. Buddy. Mm -hmm. He said these kids should be able to play some ball. Everything was segregated. But he went and he petitioned that he got us uh, some old uniforms, man, from the 1950s. <laughs> we run it out there. Yeah. Talked to a chemical company. They let us use their lot, filled out whatever paperwork he had to do went around from person to person, raised money to get this from that one and this from that one, like they, like a lot of, a lot of church organizations do. Mm -hmm. And then they put us on the schedule. So the schedule was the seven or eight white teams, and then it was three black teams because mm. of, of him. Mm. 
And he's just a citizen. He wasn't getting that. He wasn't getting paid to do it. Right. He was giving up time. And now the gym is named after him. And I didn't know it. And Jonathan Batiste and I were talking because we he's from Kenner. And I was telling him how we used to be in the gym. And Mr. Buddy, what, what, he was the time when he come into the gym. It wasn't, it wasn't, the gym was not named for him. It was a new gym. And we said we would be in the gym. And Mr. Buddy would come in the gym. All the kind of older cats would say, man, we, we got to stop all this cursing because Buddy is up in here. Like the respect that we had for him. We call him Mr. Buddy. He said, Mr. Buddy, I said, yeah. He said, the gym is named after him. I said, what, what you talking about? He said, the gym is called Buddy Lawson. Mm. I said, it wasn't called Buddy Lawson when I was growing up. It was called Doohy, something, something Doohy Gym. And he said, it's, and he, he sent me a picture of Buddy Lawson of, of the gym now with Buddy's name on it. And I was thinking just across time, how to us, Buddy was, was a person that we knew. Yeah. To Jay Baddenham, there was the guy whose name was on the gym. Mm. And sometimes, you know, these things go on for generations. And it's these age-old human battles, man, millennia. Yeah. And we are part of that, of that, uh, of that struggle. We want to see change in our lifetime. But many times we're just a small part of the change. And we spend our whole lives toiling, our lives, our parents' lives, and their parents. We could, we could spend whole and, uh, you know, it's worth, it's worth, it's worth the, the struggle. But when you start to think it shouldn't be a struggle because you're a certain age, that's when you become old. <laughs> yeah, dig that. I think right. uh, you mm -hmm. keep your youthfulness as long as you know that the, the struggles that you had and that you saw and the changes you want to see in the community, in the education system, in, the, in, in, in my case, in the arts, that it's, you don't determine the outcome of it. Many people do. And all you can do is your part, but you got to keep that struggle and that hunger. Because for black people, when you, when you lose that struggle, you become like an uncle, mm. you know, and then you get, you get always good reviews. Everybody loves you. Yeah. And you used to be something because now your, your virility is gone and your ability to, to, to fight against uh, the injustices. And the injustice is not just by white people. Your, 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 the, the meaning of your symbols and your traditions as expressed in the art. And it means that you're willing to embrace changes to that tradition that, that, that bring you closer to meaning and function of it. And in the times that is, that is needed for you to, to maintain the line on some things, though it may be unpopular, you're willing to do that. And to be any type of leader, I feel that you have to have imagination, to imagine the world a different way. But, but in relation to first knowing the world that you're imagining. And then you have to have the courage to stand by uh, some type of vi vision. And with that courage is also the courage to, to be flexible enough to change. And then you have to have the discipline to continue to study and question and, and to be rigorous. So um, I, I think that ultimate cultural leadership in relation to the arts is about your ability to interpret symbols in the, in the symbolic language of the arts and what they mean to the, the experience of being who you are and where you are. Okay, now you mentioned about your mythology. You know, and that's something you've been riffing on for decades. And, um, you know, I've heard you say that, um, you know, our culture mythology is, is something that we need to one understand and get back to and of course jazz is a part of that so can you just go into a little more detail about the mythological piece 
and, and why they're so crucial to your conception? Well, like in America, the, 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 let's take all the deepest myths, which is the rags to riches story mm. is, is, is one myth. Now, of course, Louis Armstrong, Horatio whoever, Alger. Horatio, whoever yeah. Horatio Alger story, mm. Louis Armstrong coming from the very bottom, going to the very top in terms of influence and a depth of understanding, he has to be off the chain of American heroes. In our mythology, he, he cannot be presented heroically. So he ends up being like a jester in our mythology mm. is what we know. You're talking about in the United States of America, yeah, and our, writ, and, writ large. Writ large, and, and what do we remember him as now? Is he a mm. part of curriculum? Mm. His greatest achievements known? Mm. Is he studied, you know? Was was that's just that's just one example. So mm -hmm. the, the question of your mythology is what is heroic behavior? What is virtuous? Mm -hmm. And when you look at movies and other things that interpret that mythology, and you look at where black folks are consistently put in those movies, and it's always like a fool or the second guy watching the action or a victim of something. So that's your that's kind of you start to look at the symbolism of who you are, and you look at in, in our lifetime, black when you saw black people in movies up to the mid-1960s, they were always like afraid of ghosts and always being victimized by somebody and always still in the kind of menstrual tradition. Always oh, some, shuck, some shuck, shucking and jiving. Shucking and jiving. Never any romantic, forget about that. I mean, it's never any kind of <laughs> it was always something. If it was a woman, it was always loud. Uh, coming out the kitchen, Aunt Jemima, t t telling everybody, was well, she smarter than we thought she was? You know, it's always like a kind of patronizing. Then, 15 years later, from, from 1965, in 15 years that, we, that we, we lived through, we went from that to being criminals, predators, pimps, hustlers, drug addicts, we became all of that in 15 years. Then we weren't afraid of ghosts. That was the transition, and that was the transition that took place to to justify the crimes of the civil rights movement. Mm. So whenever something happens that makes you question a lying narrative, you have to figure out how am I going to disavow this fact and get back to the lying narrative. Mm. So. Okay, these people, obviously, we can't keep saying they're afraid of ghosts because of the civil rights movement. What can we say about them so that we can keep the same narrative that they're subhuman and have deserved the treatment that they receive? Make them criminals, celebrate pimps. I'll never forget how much my mama was really against all those pimp movies that we loved and went to mm -hmm. see. And we loved them, you know, so. And it, it actually helps me today when there are things that I don't like that everybody loves, like, you know, the use of the N word and stuff I've talked about for years. Mm -hmm. I just think about myself at 15 and 14 and 16 and the type of arguments and fights I would have with my mama and how I was ready to dismiss her as old fashioned because she didn't think it's suitable that our mythology be changed to being pimps. She hated that. So, you know, that's when you control the symbology. Mm. Once I can control that symbolism, I put you where I want to put you. And then you will then act in the fashion that your, that your mythic symbolism tells you to act in. So if I tell you to be a victim, then every story is a victim. Right. And it's not just apply to black folks. It could right. be anybody. That's right. I mean, I mean, a lot of you the know? folks, 
for example, a lot of the folks who mention this again, you know, as we did in the other interview, a lot of folks in in the capital um, insurrection, you know, they actually perceive themselves as victims. It's like, you know, well, a lot of them are victims. There you go. That's right. So there's, there's a there's a there's a there's a truth to it. That's right. Like yeah, you know, we we're always willing to sacrifice facts mm. to make something feel a certain way. Right, that's why Shakespearean villains are always so good. Yeah. Because they're, they're not one thing. That they're, they're round things. That's right. Right. And uh, it's much easier to say these people are all day sitting up somewhere, Duck Dynasty or whatever the cliche is at the moment. Man, I don't even know. I mean, I'm not looking at stuff. Right. So, but, but we did have Sidney Poitier, for example, in that in-between period where he represented, you know, dignity you know, honor. He, but know. he it was a big deal. Like, you know, you looked at every movie he was in. But even then, the plot lines was, guess who's coming to dinner? The woman had to be blind. Or mm. Lilies of the Field, he was desexualized. Mm. Now, the movies they made with him and Bill Cosby, you know, when those movies came in, Buck and the Preacher, and Harry Belafonte, you start to have movies that put people in heroic roles. They could have a love interest, Sounder. You know what I'm saying? You could, yeah. you remember every movie because that was when they still had all the, all the black ball players in Ebony. So every event that happened, everybody knew anything that was positive. That's right. You that's know, why, I and that's, and that's, why, that's why Ebony in itself was very positive because it was like, you know, black achievement, right. excellence, you know, but yeah. what you saying about- But, but saying it was small. Right, you know, you know, I remember when Shirley Chisholm was on TV, my mama made us look at it. Mm. And when you're young, you're not looking at political announcements and all of that. You know, you're Barbara Jordan, man, Barbara Jordan, they did a 60 Minutes on Barbara Jordan. That was later. But you you knew whenever, you knew Kareem and, you know, his struggle to get people to call him Kareem and they kept wanting to call him Lou Alcindor. You knew about Muhammad and the music had, you know, you knew about what Marvin Gaye, his, his struggle and, you know, you knew Jet had stuff in it, but everything was, uh, you were trying to work with your symbology. And when Harry Belafonte would speak his consciousness, you kind of, man, this dude is conscious. The last poets, it wasn't known by everybody, but there was a consciousness movement. And then as that began to erode, how do you control, then the symbolism it changed totally. It became a celebration of gangsters and thugs who was preying on the community. I always have to tell people, you know, when we were coming up, well, we were segregated, so you wasn't wasn't like a, you know who you are. You was who you were, but it wasn't a thing where you were going to celebrate dudes who were robbing and killing people, drug dealers. I mean, that was, they wasn't celebrated. Now they had power. <laughs> you didn't mess with them. Right. But it wasn't. Now there's the thought that every every person who grows up in the hood is a criminal, and that's all cultural mythology. Right. Right. I mean, and, you know, they really most of the people are victims of the criminals who live there. That's, no doubt. No doubt. Which is, you why, know, and the criminals are not, there's not a large number of them. It's not how it's portrayed. It's all that's criminals right. here. Exactly. And it's, and it's, it's just, uh, you know, it just will take time. We, it's a lot to work through slavery and the aftermath of it and having to carry the guilt of the nation and mm -hmm. to not have real, actual, acute leadership. And, the, you know, it's always, a, it's, it's just gonna be a struggle for a much longer time if it ever resolves, mm. which we don't know, there's so much change always going on. Right. And it's so difficult to ascertain what the change is or what the route is because there's a lot going on. Absolutely. And no matter how much you think you know, there's always you take all of what you know and all of what everybody you know knows and y'all still all together don't know anything. 
That's right, relative to the level of knowledge. Relative to what there is, what there is, relative to what's actually happening, happening in general, you know, because we things happen. That's right. I always ask my daddy, did he think segregation would end when when Martin Luther King started his career in the mid fifties? He said no, no way in the world. And he said that when he saw Lyndon Johnson become president, he said, well, that's it for that. Because Lyndon Johnson was from the South. It's from the South. Yeah, yeah but, the, but the irony was, and, and, and Murray talks about this in South to a very old place, of course, the irony was that as, as Murray had a elder, you know, black um, Southern uh, person speak in South to a very old place, he said, you know, we need a mean cracker to deal with those other mean crackers. You know what I mean? So the irony of that, but so Johnson ended up in terms of you know civil rights, you know, being more heroic. Now Vietnam's another story, but yeah, but but this is an example of what I'm saying. Hmm. Like you can't whenever it, you whenever you dap him for what he did for this issue, he's got to also be right on Vietnam. Hmm. It's like each hmm. two of us, and I'm not once again, I'm not trying to, but just a nuanced way of looking at the world. And more accurate is sometimes you get messianic. Jesus type figures that are perfect, <laughs> but as few and far between. I mean, if 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 I have to, if I man, if I have to be perfect, let no, me no. stop talking. Yeah, exactly. Right. I really, you know, I don't have nothing to say because I'm. I mean, I'm. I've messed up a lot. We all have. And, man. Did a lot of dumb stuff that I knew better than. Mm -hmm. But does that make what we're talking about this invalid? Or, no. Or if that's the case, let's just be quiet. And I hear you, man. So let me ask you this, because I think. See, one of the things that I um, have been really researching for, for some decades and have come to this particular phrase, I've been researching culture, you know, over race for decades, because I saw how Stanley, how Murray, how Ellison, the trick bag of race is not something that they that they fell into. They knew that they, they knew that shit was some bullshit. So but they focus on culture in its various forms of manifestation. So just like there's social intelligence, emotional intelligence, um, there's cultural intelligence, which is not something that's really focused on. So when you hear the term cultural intelligence, what does that mean to you? It means that you're aware of how your story fits into the overall human story. And it's difficult because tribalism feels good. It doesn't matter what that tribe is. It'll be my mom and all of our friends talking, oh, girl, and then so-and-so, girl, let me tell you, girl, they was doing this, a child, you know, oh, girl. Or it could be a, a bunch of dudes calling each other. Yeah, yeah, my nigga, you know, I was, yeah, nigga, I was, you know, just all it could be. I'm sure what white folks do when they, I'm sure they got they, they thing they do. I don't know what it is, but I mean, they have. <laughs> well, you, you know, any I mean, group well, any, group, any, any you, group of people. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 you know, BS of race. I mean, let's look at ethnicity, you know, Italians. Irish, you any, know, Polish. Any, any group of people. But you right. know, let's look at not even that. Other subgroups we don't even know. Taylor Street. Like when I was growing up, it was in Kenner, it was Webster Street. Mm. You know, I, I, I had gotten a scrape with some dudes on Taylor Street. Everybody on Webster Street was, man, we got to go over and kick the people in Taylor Street ass. When I was in, in New Orleans, I lived in Pigeon Town. And then it was Pigeon Town versus Holly Grove. Man, we better not see nobody from Pigeon Town in Holly Grove. Yeah, it was, it was a similar thing. I mean, growing up, moved from Brooklyn to Staten Island. We were in a section called Clifton, and Clifton had Park Hill Apartments, six-story. I happened to live in a six-story project, man. 
and <laughs> the neighborhood next door was Stapleton, the right. Stapleton projects. Now it so happened that the Washington family were in Stapleton. And I ended up meeting Reggie Washington, Kenny Washington, Yvette Washington, and they ended up influencing my whole conception of music and jazz and everything. But in terms of just the neighborhoods, it was like, you looked at Stapleton like, matter of fact, first time I met Reggie Washington, you know, we had come over, play some ball <laughs> in Stapleton, you know, and Reggie could play. Reggie could play. He had that vertical leap and everything. We were going at it. Yeah out that he was a musician a bassist perfect pitch you know what i mean and uh and we and we became friends man but yeah that cold but that so the tribal thing is real but this is where i get to this idea man it's a philosophical concept from anthony appia that um political philosopher danielle allison has extended elaborated and refined in some of her work rooted cosmopolitanism be rooted in traditions, right? You can be rooted in identity, various forms of identity, but you could be cosmopolitan, a citizen well, of the world at the same time. Yeah, but that's that's like you being yourself and also being a part of your family. Mm, mm. You you're not your brothers and sisters, but you you know you you are them too. Right. And that's uh, that's the the broader thought, and that is the thought in a mythology. Mm. And that's that's why cultural symbolism is so important. And cultural intellect is the ability to accurately interpret these symbols. Mm. And they, you know, they're, they're not necessarily easy to, to, to interpret because, because the, uh, the truth is always, the, the, a good lie is always real close to the truth. And sometimes a good lie feels much better than what's real. <laughs> you know, sometimes you, somebody be telling you a story, say, no, no, man, make up something better than that. Don't don't you know don't <laughs> right. don't tell us don't tell us what happened. I know, right? And, and you know it's possible for you to lie to yourself so much that you start to believe it. Mm. So there's a it's it's important to keep a humor is important too. Like Absolutely, you man. You can't you can't take 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 stuff too seriously, even though it's serious. Right. You got to still have fun with it. That's that's one. That's one. At the end of the day, it might not work out. The way that's you, right. You know, it, at the end of the day, yeah, you don't determine what it is. You're another person interpreting it. That's the truth. And that's and, one of the uh, I was just going to say, that's one of the reasons why, you know, like political ideologies, when I see, you know, activists, you know what I mean? And we need that. There's no doubt we need that. But it's like when I see these movements and I see how serious they are, and I'm like, what's the music of your movement? Can you laugh? Can you take a step back and... And, and express some humor. Can you, you know, I mean, just talking about basic humanity, man. You know, that's that's why, uh, to me, political ideologies are, are, are going to be uh, limits, man. You know, when we talk about culture, we're talking about people who derive, this is my perspective, values and meaning from certain actual practices of engagement you know, with other people, you know, and also how you perceive yourself. And I'm going to riff on what you said, like, I love the scaling of what you did. You know, I'd said rooted cosmopolitanism and I took it from the rooted identity to citizen of the world or cosmos. And you said, but that's like the individual in relation to the family. So we're talking about like a fractal kind of relationality. I love that, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's very similar in, in, in that way. And if we can get a, 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 
a perception of like how we as individuals are going to be agents. We were talking about that in relation to like, if you're a citizen, take action, try to make things better, do what you can where you are as an individual. At the same time, you got to do stuff in collaboration with other people. It's so fundamental, but we get right. caught up. You know what I mean? We get but I'm, I'm saying that to myself. You know, I'm not even saying it to nobody else. All right, now. Like, that's what I need to do. I don't know. I, I can't speak for what, what somebody else, but I need to do. I agree with you, man. I appreciate that. And, I, and as always, man, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your, your insights. I appreciate your integrity. And I appreciate your soulfulness, man. Hey, man, always. It's always good to see you and talk to you. All right, bro. All right, Greg. So that was my conversation with Wynton Marsalis from a few years ago. Uh, and you could hear his musical depth, intelligence, and even England genius. And you also heard him talk about, you know, the fact that his relationships with Stanley Crouch, Ellison, uh, Albert Murray, Ralph Ellison, Albert Murray, but like family and, and the significance of that. So um, what I'd like to do is end by talking about your part two, Arye. You mentioned Right. That there's a part one of your initiation, your jazz initiation story, and there's a part right. two. Tell us about part two. Yeah, well, part two is is connected to that down-to-earth, soulful wisdom and intelligence that came out in your that you brought out of Wynton that came out in that in the interview. And I think down-to-earth, it's it's helpful to start with down-to-earth as a term. We can look at it from from two directions. One is the classic uh, Hebrew uh, uh, Jacob's Ladder, which is Sulam Mutsav Alksa Roshul Magia Shamaima, a ladder who's, that's rooted in the earth, but his head reaches the heavens. This is a, a model of completion. This is a model of human growth that it's not, uh, high culture is not disconnected from the earth. It's, it's rooted in the earth. Uh, from, from the Omni-American perspective and the language of Albert Murray, it, 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 it encompasses within itself the folk elements of the popular, but it, it's fine art. Uh, uh, and, uh, it, but that elevated, that elevation that's reached confers upon it a, a different perspective, which in the American context is unique. <clears throat> Within the American context, it confers a way of looking at things from above, but in a very humane way. It, it's a perspective that enables you to recognize that there, there are higher things, there is nobility, uh, enable, because that's the kind of person you are to look humanely upon the whole. Um, in 1989, I was a student in college, and I, I was at my second university. I would attend three. One thing they don't teach at universities is anything connected to the soul, really, in any profound sense. And that's what I most needed. And I found that, and I listened to the album repeatedly, and, and Wynton's Majesty of the Blues it accompanied me like a friend. It, it, it it, it inspired me and, and pointed me in the direction and reflected to me in art. Remember, I was, I'd had that original experience in 86. I was open and receptive. And the music itself, together with Stanley Crouch's liner notes, which I, you know, in time would understand how he was 
informed and inspired by Ralph Ellison and Albert Berry, et cetera, et cetera, and had his own voice. Uh, but those liner notes together, especially with the sermon, Premature Autopsies, that for me was a way I sustained my soul because that's a text and a piece of music that offers a vision of nobility explicitly, an explicit appeal to nobility to, and to nobility as a, as a, as a, as a real thing. Um, and I, I can really, when, when I was really in all of the respects kind of surrounded by a spiritual desert, this was an oasis and it sustained me and I will be forever grateful to the music, uh, uh, and to the wisdom for that. Oh, that's beautiful. That is a beautiful story, man. So, and in the show notes, we'll definitely make sure that we, um, link to, you know, Winston's democracy suite. Um, Majesty of the Blues, particularly premature autopsies. Yeah. So folks can check yeah. it out for for themselves. So we certainly thank you for joining us at Straight Ahead, the Omni American podcast. And uh, we want you to stay with us and uh, keep swinging. Thank you for listening to Straight Ahead, the Omni American podcast. Subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast and fight for a future where the many can join as one against bigotry.